You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith, how are you doing? I'm in good shape. How are you? I am good. I'm good. Before I ask you a question, let me invite everybody. 011-830-702, the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Um, if you've got a science-related question for Dr. Chris Smith, this is your opportunity. As we are busy talking about um, thunder and lightning, doctor, um, and we'll give all of you an opportunity, of course, to ask the doctor question. I'm just wondering, right, at what point should you not be enjoying the thunder and lightning and actually go and try and take cover? Like, what is the measure using your eyes um, that you should use? And I do recall being told um, by an aunt that whenever there's thunder, God is moving furniture around. And (laughs) whenever there's lightning, he's taking photographs. Well, if you get hit, you're definitely too close. I think that's one unarguable rule of thumb. The bottom line is it's a beautiful force of nature, but it does come with risk, as does pretty much every beautiful force of nature. When you're seeing things off in the distance, though, you're at very low risk. When that storm gets very close to you, then really what it's looking for is a high point, a distortion in the in the electric field between the bottom of the cloud and the ground surface. And any high point, anywhere where there's a concentration of charge which would distort and deform the field, will be more likely to be struck. And that could be an animal, it could be a tree, or if you're that high point, especially with your umbrella up, it could be you. So the bottom line is, is if you're hearing thunder and it's getting closer, you should watch out and you, you certainly should try not to be on a high point, be the only high point, or ideally be inside if you can. And inside a car is a really safe place to be because cars are Faraday cages. They're a metal cage all around you, which means there's no net potential difference across the, th- the occupants of the car. So any electricity that hits the car will just be passing equally in all directions around you but not through you so you'd be completely unharmed i actually have a friend whose car literally died after being struck by lightning and i didn't even know that it was possible for your car to just die boom that's it it does tend to happen in the modern era because cars are electrical devices which contain enormous amounts of high-end electronics and sometimes the high temperature the high current which flows through the bodywork even transiently can disturb the electrics even a welding kit welding a car can can damage the electronics in a in a modern car and that's probably what it is it's um disturbed the ignition system and the alarm system and that kind of thing but the occupants on the other hand will be completely unharmed i'm pleased to say all right let's go to the lines on 011 we've got freddie in midrand hi freddie can you turn your radio off please freddie I want to know from Dr. Chris that a few years ago I've had a hip replacement operation and the doctor uh, cut my nerve um, and it, I had a drop foot. Uh, the drop foot has recovered quite significantly, but I know how long does it take? It's over 10 years now and it's still got a slight drop. Does it ever heal? Hello, Freddie. Well, when you cut a nerve... Unlike in your central nervous system, your brain and spinal cord, the peripheral nervous system, meaning the nerves that supply your muscles and the nerves that come in from your skin to alert you to what you're feeling and touching, they do regenerate quite well. And if the surgeon is able to bring the two nerves together, the two cut ends, and bring them into apposition, then the severed nerve will grow back into the conduit which was the nerve that was there before, and it will reunite with the existing targets. 
and the degree of recovery can be really very good but sometimes there will be losses sometimes it's not possible to recover all of the sensation to all of the areas or all of the movement from all of the muscles and there are various reasons for that but one of them is that when the nerve is traumatized in the first place not all of the nerve fibers can survive and also not all of them do make that journey back regenerating back to their distal target and there are various reasons why that happens but really after 10 years you've probably got about as much functional recovery as you're going to get the nerves grow very slowly they grow you know literally millimeters a day and it so, so it does take a reasonable period of time for a nerve to reconnect with its distal target especially when it's from the top of your leg to the bottom of your leg for example which is a huge distance in in neurological terms that's a nerve which is too small for you to see with the naked eye has got to traverse a distance of a meter in some cases to to reach its distal target so it does take time but i think probably you've got to the stage now at 10 years where it's probably not going to improve any more and what you are going to have to do is to come up with ways functionally to get round any uh, existing disability. And it sounds like you have, but um, it, believe me, a hip replacement in, in terms of pain relief, I suspect, was, was a welcome um, thing to have, wasn't it? Uh, Freddie, you feel much better now after the hip replacement? Yes, very much better. Thank you so mm, much. Mm. Thank you so much, Freddie and Medran. And I see we're going to come to you in a moment. Oh, double one, double eight, three, oh, seven, oh, two, where you can give us a call on the WhatsApp line. Oh, seven, two, seven, oh, two, one, seven, oh, two. 702. The Naked Scientist. 11 minutes to 3 o'clock, 011 and the WhatsApp line 072 with Dr. Chris Smith for The Naked Scientist. Let's go to Anne in Rosebank. Hi, Anne. Hi, there. Hi, there. I love your show. Thank um, you. Doctor, I've got fibroepithelial polyps. How long do they, before they go to turn into cancer? Because I can only have surgery next year, August. So will I be dead before then? What do you think? Yeah, and that was so deep the way you asked that. <laughs> are these are these colonic polyps? Are we talking about in the bowel here? Uh, the anal, unfortunately. I mean, really. Oh, and mm. well, the, the bottom line is, and if you excuse that pun, I'm just trying to lighten the mood a little <laughs> tiny bit. Um, these things take time to develop and no disease mm -hmm. appears in a flash like that and so it's, yes. it's not one of those things that if you wait uh, another week suddenly what was treatable this week isn't next week it's not like that it is a timeline continuum and obviously with any disease the sooner you intervene the better the outcome is going to be but it's not like you cross some magic line where there are these cells standing mm. there with a, a, a stopwatch in their hand saying right you've had your chance you've left it too long you've missed the deadline now we're, we're going to be nasty it's a progressive thing and it will really depend on what the grade of that tissue is right now, whether they already have shown signs of becoming malignant or whether they're totally benign. And, and they, they start benign. And there's no guarantee that they're going to, unless someone's told you they've got some samples from them and that they have already become malignant. That's, that's not going to be the case. So really it comes down to each individual case and doing proper investigations to make sure that you understand what the disease process is, 
what what sort of progression it's made towards being potentially nasty or not and therefore what the best intervention is and it will be different for everybody but the the bottom line here is the sooner you intervene the better and get and get that knowledge because it will make you uh, understand exactly what's going on and you'll know it from a position of of knowledge where where you stand and then you'll also have the best outcome because you'll either do something and do something promptly or you'll know that you can wait a bit longer Thank you so much. And let's go to Gerald in Midrand. Hi. Good afternoon and thanks uh, for allowing me to speak. Mm, go ahead. Um, is there a remedy? This is the address to the, uh, the scientific doctor. Is there a remedy for uh, pure lice which cannot be seen on the skin? Lice so that cannot be remedy? seen. Okay. Well, the lice do uh, exist all over you know, the, the world. Different people get them in different places. There are head lice, there are pubic lice. You can see them with a magnifying glass, but uh, they are too small for many people to Sorry, see. Sorry, Dr. Chris, the... you said there's pubic lice. Yeah, is that what he's asking? No, I'm just, I didn't even know that was a thing. Oh, yes. There are two different types of louse. There are head lice and pubic lice. And as humans became less hairy, then and hair retreated to certain parts of our body only, then where the lice could live, obviously they got cocooned in their own little island where they could live. And so you have lice which live on your head and you have lice which live below the belt. And I suppose they could invade underarm hair as well. But they're referred to as pubic lice. And they, they are very, very similar. These are little blood-sucking insects, um, arthropods that will burrow down into the skin and they get a meal there and they munch away on you. And if you get rid of all the hair, then they've got nowhere to live and they will go away. But you also poison them with various other creams and things. But you you get them by rubbing up against other people who've got them. I'm literally getting onto you. I'm getting like ugh, the heebie-jeebies listening to you talk about They also this. go by the colloquial name <laughs> crabs. Oh. Um, and they are very common and uh, you are, you see them mostly in young sexually active people of course and most most people who are having multiple partners are at more risk than people who are monogamous obviously. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so grossed out right now. I need someone to ask a question that's not going to gross me out. Gogo Lindiwe in Soweto. I haven't spoken to you in forever. Yes, I did call you people, but hey, man, sometimes <laughs> they take my call, they don't return my call. Oh, Gogo Lindiwe, I've missed yes. you. I'm in trouble, man. I'm in trouble. I don't have a place to stay. I have nothing. I'm still, my son is sick. He's in Devon. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you off air, Gogo, and we can catch up. Please. So, please, what, what do you wanna ask don't the good forget. doctor? Yes. Yes, my problem is my knees. I had a bottle of 98 in my neck. In a, now, my, my, I went to the hospital. They booked me. On the 17 of mm. this month, man, I can't walk anymore. It's growing and growing and growing. I, I'm in trouble, man, and, and especially in my age. And and how old are you now, Gogo? I'm 67. Mm. Okay, so so Gogo, which question specifically do you have for the doctor? Uh, where can I do? Because I'm, I, man. That your legs you are know, just getting painful. Yes, yes. Mm. And I can feel the bottle still in, in my... Here. Mm. Mm. It don't weigh me because I took half, but there was something left there. 
I shall find out from now on when they take an X-ray, mm. and then they saw a piece of Portland there, you know. But now the the, the date is too late. On the seventeenth of November, mm. it's too long to us. Yes. So, so doctor, in a situation like this where Gogo Lindiwe um is walking around with a bottle in her leg, um, if there are circumstances that don't allow her to just simply go and get it removed, what can be done? It sounds like she has a foreign body. So in other words, if you've stood on a bit of glass and it's embedded itself somewhere, the reason they do x-rays is because the material, particularly things like glass, will be relatively opaque to x-ray. And so it'll show up as as something with a different density to the tissue around it. So you can see where it is and then they know how to get it out. The problem with bits of glass is they do break in ways that make them very sharp and they therefore tend to drive themselves in and they don't come out readily and then the body forms an inflammatory reaction around them and you get thicker tissue around the the foreign body and it isn't easily dislodged and sometimes it can be necessary to actually open the skin up a bit and hoik the object out. Uh, If it's not infected and it's just been walled off inside then that's a good thing because it means that although it's uncomfortable it's not going to get worse. My worry is if she's got a wound there or this has got colonized with bacteria it could drive that bacterial infection deeper into the tissue and then it can transmit further into other parts of the, say, foot, into bones, for example. You can get a bone infection and so on. So I I really think if this is causing disabling uh, ability to walk around, she really needs to get this sorted out sooner rather than later because I would be concerned that A, it's going to cause mobility problems, but B, it could also get infected. And so I think getting it out is, is the priority here. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to part in Johannesburg. Doctor, you talk about the body's reaction to foreign objects. And my question is related to that. So my understanding is that the body does everything it can to protect you from things that go on around you. When you get bitten by an insect, for instance, a mosquito, how is the itchiness that you feel protection of self? Because if you scratch that itch, you ultimately make it worse and you can, the area can get infected, you mm. get a wound. Mm. Hi, Mpo. Well, the answer to this is the reason you end up itchy is that the mosquito, when it lands on you, threads its proboscis, its mouth parts, through the surface layers of the skin and probes and pokes and prods around until it can access a small blood vessel. And once it's in there, it secretes its saliva into the, into the area and the saliva contains an anticoagulant to stop your blood clotting. But in the saliva are also microorganisms, fungi, other proteins that uh, the mosquito is putting into you. And this is, in the short term, not a problem for the mosquito. It gets a drink and disappears, but it leaves behind that infection, various bacteria, aeromonas and so on, but also those proteins which went in with the saliva to A, stop you clotting, but B, there are also other parts of the mosquito's saliva, and your body mounts a reaction to them, and they trigger a, a reaction to the mosquito's saliva. So your body, by swelling up, is actually calling in the big guns of the immune system and saying, this area is an area that's been breached, it's been compromised, there's nasties here. Bring in the immune system and let's do a clean-up. Let's sterilize the area and make sure that nothing has persisted. So the itchy mosquito mosquito bite is actually doing you a favor. It's drawing attention to the fact that you've been bitten. It's drawing your immune system's attention to the fact you've been bitten. And it's bringing in the other parts of the immune system that can help to neutralize any future threat. Uh, Doctor, 
a, a non-science related question says please ask the naked scientist if he's single <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm married um, so the answer so to that question is no. Uh, but are you looking? Are you married and looking? <laughs> definitely not. Just in Don't case my wife's listening. <laughs> Dr. Christmas, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. All right. See you soon. Bye-bye.